Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 102. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, nominations are in for this year's Drabblecast People's Choice Awards, the highest honor in flash fiction audio podcasting. The top three nominated Drabbles this year are The End by Christian Corner from episode 80, Grandpa's Stories by Roy McDaniel from episode 65, and Please Allow the Door to Close by John Madai from episode 89. The top five nominated feature stories are Synesthesia by J. Allen Pierce from episode 92, Sing by Christine Catherine Rush from episode 53, Floating Over Time by Robert Reed from episode 83, Sarah's Window by Janie Lee Simner from episode 99, and Apologies All Around by Jeff Sosby from episode 76. I was happy to see that all five of these stories represent horror, sci-fi, and fantasy pretty evenly. Just shows how diverse you listeners are. So what now, you ask? Well, now you vote. Head over to our discussion forums, which you can find a link to at www.drabblecast.org. Go to the People's Choice Awards section and pick which story and Drabble you like the best. We'll keep voting open for the next two weeks and announce the winner in episode 104. So, may the best and strangest author win. Our Drabble story this week is called Rain in the Wind by Jake Freevald. We ran a Drabble by Jake not too long ago that was very well received, called Cryosleep, and we're happy to feature another one of his stories. Jake is the editor of Flash Fiction Online, which is a great place to go if you like flash fiction. Remember, Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, and don't think we don't count them. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. My lover Olivia and I grew sick together during the plague year. She asked me how I had seen it coming. I laughed painfully, and therefore briefly, and told her it was like smelling rain in the wind. Obvious, pervasive, but intangible. A taste of aching, a whiff of nausea, I said. And? Olivia paused, knowing that I'd never really answer. But she couldn't help herself. How do we end up? Olivia, I said, you already know we'll die someday. You're only asking how, and how soon. Three months later, she knew. Four years from now, I'll join her. Our feature story this week is called The Last Dog by Mike Resnick. I referred to this story a couple months ago when we featured a different dog story by Mike called Blue, and we're happy to now complete the full set of Resnick dog stories with this one. Mike is a Hugo and Nebula award-winning author with a long history of success writing science fiction and fantasy. 
You can read more about his latest projects at his website, which we'll have linked in our show notes. So, without further ado, The Last Dog by Mike Resnick. The dog, old, mangy, his vertebrae forming little ridges beneath the slack skin that covered his gaunt body, trotted through the deserted streets, nose to the ground. He was missing half an ear and most of his tail, and caked blood covered his neck like a scarf. He may have been gold once, or light brown, but now he looked like an old red brick even down to the straw and mud that clung to those few portions of his body which still retained any hair at all. Since he had no true perception of the passage of time, he had no idea when he'd last eaten, except that it had been a long time ago. A broken radiator in an automobile graveyard had provided water for the past week, and kept him in the area long after the last of the rusty, translucent liquid was gone. He was panting now, his breath coming in a never-ending series of short spurts and gasps. His sides ached, his eyes watered, and every now and then he would trip over the rubble of the decayed and ruined buildings that lined the torturously fragmented street. He continued trotting, occasionally shivering from the cold breeze that whistled down the streets of the lifeless city. Once he saw a rat, but a premature whine of hunger had sent it scurrying off into the debris before he could catch it. And so he trotted, his stride a little shorter, his chest hurting a little more, searching for sustenance so that he would live another day to hunt again and eat again and live still another day. Then suddenly he froze, his mud-caked nostrils testing the wind, the pitiful stump of a tail held rigidly behind him. He remained motionless for almost a minute, except for a spasmodic quivering in one foreleg, then slunk into the shadows and advanced silently down the street. He emerged at what had once been an intersection, stared at the thing across the street from him, and blinked. His eyesight, none too good even in the days of his youth and health, was insufficient to the task, and so he inched forward, belly to the ground, flecks of saliva falling onto his chest. The man heard a faint shuffling sound and looked into the shadows, a segment of an old two-by-four in his hand. He too was gaunt and dirty, his hair unkempt, four teeth missing and another one half-rotted away. His feet were wrapped in old rags, and the only thing that held his clothes together was the dirt. "'Who's there?' he said in a rasping voice. The dog, fangs bared, moved out from between buildings and began advancing, a low growl rumbling in his throat. The man turned to face him, strengthening his grip on his makeshift war club. They stopped when they were fifteen feet apart, tense and unmoving. 
Slowly, the man raised his club to striking position. Slowly, the dog gathered his hind legs behind him. Then, without warning, a rat raced out of the debris and ran between them. Savage cries escaped the lips of both the dog and the man. The dog pounced, but the man's stick was even faster. It flew through the air and landed on the rat's back, pulping it to the ground and killing it instantly. The man walked forward to retrieve his weapon and his prey. As he reached down, the dog emitted a low growl. The man stared at him for a long moment. Then, very slowly, very carefully, he picked up one end of the stick. He sawed with the other end against the smashed body of the rat until it split in half and shoved one pulpy segment toward the dog. The dog remained motionless for a few seconds, then lowered his head grabbed the blood-spattered piece of flesh and tissue and raced off across the street with it. He stopped at the edge of the shadows, lay down, and began gnawing at his grisly meal. The man watched him for a moment, then picked up his half of the rat, squatted down like some million years gone progenitor, and did the same. When his meal was done, the man belched once, walked over to the still-standing wall of a building, sat with his back against it, laid his two-by-four across his thighs, and stared at the dog. The dog, licking forepaws that would never again be clean, stared back. They slept thus, motionless, in the ghost city. When the man awoke the next morning, he arose, and the dog did likewise. The man balanced his stick across his shoulder and began walking, and after a moment the dog followed him. The man spent most of the day walking through the city, looking into the soft innards of stores and shops, occasionally cursing as dead store after dead store refused to yield up shoes or coats or food. At twilight he built a small fire in the rubble and looked around for the dog, but could not find it. The man slept uneasily and awoke some two hours before sunrise. The dog was sleeping about twenty feet away from him. The man sat up abruptly, and the dog, startled, raced off. Ten minutes later he was back, stopping about eighty feet distant, ready to race away again at an instant's warning, but back nonetheless. The man looked at the dog, shrugged, and began walking in a northerly direction. By midday, he had reached the outskirts of the city, and finding the ground soft and muddy, he dug a hole with his hands and his stick. He sat down next to it and waited as water slowly seeped into it. Finally, he reached his hands down, cupping them together, and drew the precious fluid up to his lips. He did this twice more, then began walking again. Some instinct prompted him to turn back, and he saw the dog eagerly lapping up what water remained. He made another kill that night. A medium-sized bird that had flown into the second-floor room of a crumbling hotel and couldn't remember how to fly out before he pulped it. He ate most of it, put the rest into what remained of a pocket, and walked outside. He threw it on the ground, and the dog slunk out of the shadows, still tense but no longer growling. The man sighed, returned to the hotel, and climbed up to the second floor, 
There were no rooms with windows intact, but he did find one with half a mattress remaining, and he collapsed upon it. When he awoke, the dog was lying in the doorway, sleeping soundly. They walked a little closer this time, through the remains of the forest that was north of the city. After they had proceeded about a dozen miles, they found a small stream that was not quite dry and drank from it, the man first and then the dog. That night the man lit another fire and the dog lay down on the opposite side of it. The next day the dog killed a small undernourished squirrel. He did not share it with the man, but neither did he growl or bare his teeth as the man approached. That night the man killed a possum and they remained in the area for two days until the last of the marsupial's flesh had been consumed. They walked north for almost two weeks, making an occasional kill, finding an occasional source of water. Then one night it rained, and there was no fire, and the man sat, arms hugging himself, beneath a large tree. Soon the dog approached him, sat about four feet away, and then slowly, ever so slowly, inched forward as the rain struck his flanks. The man reached out absently and stroked the dog's neck. It was their first physical contact, and the dog leapt back, snarling. The man withdrew his hand and sat motionless, and soon the dog moved forward again. After a period of time that might have been ten minutes, or perhaps two hours, the man reached out once more, and this time, although the dog trembled and tensed, he did not pull away. The man's long fingers slowly moved up the sore-covered neck, scratched behind the torn ears, gently stroked the scarred head. Finally, the man withdrew his hand and rolled over on his side. The dog looked at him for a moment, then sighed and laid up against his emaciated body. The man awoke the next morning to the feeling of something warm and scaly pressed into his hand. It was not the cool, moist nose of the dogs of literature, because this was not a dog of literature. This was the last dog and he was the last man. And if they looked less than heroic, at least there was no one around to see and bemoan how the mighty had fallen. The man patted the dog's head, arose, stretched, and began walking. The dog trotted at his side, and for the first time in many years, the nub of his tail moved rapidly from side to side. They hunted and ate and drank and slept, then repeated the procedure again and again. And then they came to the other. The other looked like neither man nor dog, nor like anything else of earth, as indeed it was not. It had come from beyond Centauri, beyond Arcturus, past Antares, from deep at the core of the galaxy where the stars pressed so close together that nightfall never came. It had come, and had seen, and had conquered. You, 
hissed the man, holding his stick at the ready. You are the last, said the other. For six years I have soured and scourged the face of this planet. For six years I have eaten alone and slept alone and lived alone and hunted down the survivors of the war one by one. And you are the last. There is only you to be slain, and then I may go home. And so saying, it withdrew a weapon that looked strangely like a pistol, but wasn't. The man crouched and prepared to hurl his stick, but even as he did so, a brick-red, scarred, bristling engine of destruction hurtled past him, leaping through space for the other. The other touched what passed for a belt, made a quick gesture in the air, and the dog bounced back off of something that was invisible, unsensible, but untangible. Then, very slowly, almost casually, the other pointed its weapon at the man. There was no explosion, no flash of light, no whirring of gears. But suddenly, the man grasped his throat and fell to the ground. The dog got up and limped painfully over to the man. He nuzzled his face, whined once, and pawed at his body, trying to turn it over. It is no use, said the other, although its lips no longer moved. He was the last, and now he is dead. The dog whined again and pushed the man's lifeless head with his muzzle. Come, animal, said the other, wordlessly. Come with me, and I shall feed you and tend to your wounds. I will stay with the man, said the dog, also wordlessly. But he is dead. Soon you will grow hungry and weak. I was hungry and weak before, said the dog. The other took a step forward, but stopped as the dog bared his teeth and growled. He was not worth your loyalty. He was my... The dog's brain searched for a word, but the concept it sought was complex, far beyond its meager abilities to formulate. He was my friend. He was my enemy. He was petty and barbarous and unscrupulous and all that is worst in a sentient being. He was man. Yes, said the dog. He was man. With another whimper, he lay down beside the body of the man and rested his head on its chest. There are no more, and soon you will leave him. The dog looked up at the other and snarled again, and then the other was gone and the dog was alone with the man. He licked him and nuzzled him and stood guard over him for two days and two nights, and then, as the other had said he would, he left to hunt for food and water. And he came to a valley of fat, lazy rabbits and cool, clear ponds, and he ate and drank and grew strong 
and his wounds began to scab over and heal, and his coat grew long and luxuriant. And because he was only a dog, it was not long before he'd forgot that there had ever been such a thing as a man. Except on those chilly nights, when he lay alone beneath a tree in the valley and dreamt of a bond that had been forged by a gentle touch upon the head or a soft word barely audible above the crackling of a small fire. And, being a dog, one day he forgot even that and assumed the emptiness within him came only from hunger. And when he grew old and feeble and sick, he did not seek out the man's barren bones and lie down to die beside them, but rather he dug a hole in the damp earth near the pond and lay there, his eyes half closed, a numbness setting in at his extremities and working its way slowly towards his heart. And just before the dog exhaled his last breath, he felt a moment of panic. He tried to jump up, but found that he couldn't. He whimpered once, his eyes clouding over with fear and something else. And then it seemed to him that a bony, gentle hand was caressing his ears. And with a single wag of his tail, the last dog closed his eyes for the last time and prepared to join a god of stubbled beard and torn clothes and feet wrapped in rags. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's hit some story feedback and wrap this thing up. A couple weeks ago, we ran a story about technology and dating called Daydream Nation by author Paul DeFilippo. This story got folks talking, and the majority vote was that it was a winner. Chivalry Bean said, Not only is this a top Drabblecast story in recent history, it's a top story in many of the short fiction podcasts I listen to. Cool sci-fi gadget, believable and interesting characters, a good chuckle ending, a pop culture retarded TV mashup spin-off series joke, and good readers that fit the story well. Sully Dog said, I actually quite enjoyed this story. The use of technology was well done. As others have mentioned earlier, it's very indicative of where our society is currently headed. The entire paradigm of communication has been turned on its head. We've gone from language without writing to written communications without verbalization. Mr. Tweedy made an interesting observation, saying, What I think is really interesting is the irony of how the technology in this story affects people. The Dreamcaster is the epitome of high tech, but its effect is to make people more primitive. As shallow as the conventional dating scene can be, eye dreams make it infinitely more so. These people's relationships don't start with conversations, eye contact, or even amorous assessments of each other's bodies. Series I Dream, Bindi makes her less like a human and more like a rutting animal, sniffing the breeze for a scent that trips her switch. Intriguing perspectives. The following week, we ran a lighter kid's story called The Graggleberry Thief by Steve Clancy that had a bossy chicken trying to meet a graggleberry deadline despite a monkey's suspicious chicanery. This one got an A+. And Andrea said, Great timing for a bird-themed Drabblecast. We were just talking about the bizarro bird-caused plane crash in my office this morning. I absolutely adored the alliteration of the Graggleberry Thief. It made for a fun Friday fable. Thanks. Rick V said, It isn't often you get a traditional, or not-so-traditional, fable anymore. Thanks for digging this one out. 
I kept waiting for some highbrow, animal farm-esque theme about capitalism and corporate greed. When it ended so lighthearted, more like a kid's joke than lit, it was a good twist. We do try and change it up on you folks when we can. And now for a list of things either I should let you know about or I should remind you about. 1. If you've got a hankering to catch up on some back episodes of Drabblecast and you want them on a CD, no problem. Go to poddisc.com. We'll have a link in our show notes. You can get seasons 1 through 3 there for your easy listening convenience. And make fun of us as we progress through our awkward teenage podcast years. Yeah, using a nice microphone in podcasting is so typical. I am totally never going to conform. Number 2. Wouldn't you like to own a Drabblecast t-shirt? Of course you would. The back says Drabblecast, strange stories for strange listeners, and the front says improvements in animal technology and has a dolphin strapped to a pig. Wear it to the gym. Pick up chicks. If you're interested, email us at drabblecast at yahoo.com or check out the link in our show notes and we'll hook you up. Three. If you like our show, why not subscribe for a measly five bucks a month through the donate button on our webpage, drabblecast.org. Or if you don't like that kind of commitment, just donate once. We need your donations to help pay writers for being creative and talented. What better way could you spend your money? Be a pal and spread the word about us. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever. Or share us with a friend. No worries. We use a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means it's perfectly fine to distribute this content however you like. Just don't charge money for it or change it without talking to Uncle Norm about it first. Well, that's all for this week. Tune in next week for something short, weird, and awesome. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that the other's belt is not what it looks like. 